Growing up, reading books like Papillon and The Count of Monte Cristo, and watching films like Escape to Alcatraz and The Shawshank Redemption, like many of us, I've always enjoyed tales of prison breaks. In today's story, we dig into a little-known story from the official FBI files in J. Edgar Hoover's part in a prison escape in search in 1930s America. Welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. Firstly, thanks to the FBI official website for publishing some of their old files, some of which make for fascinating stories, and I will return to them regularly for future episodes. I'll also put the link to the website on the show notes for today's episode for any curious brains who want to seek them out. In 1930s America, the public were to make legends out of criminals like John Dillinger, Machine Gun Kelly and Bonnie and Clyde, just as deep as their love for Hollywood stars. And as the newspaper-loving public loved their daring robberies and shootouts, and also the fact that they gave their criminals nicknames, it left a wealth of source material for podcasters almost a hundred years later. In the latter part of 1933 and early part of 1934, the Chicago gang of Roger the Terrible Tui was smashed. Singly and in groups, the Tui mobsters were accounted for. James Tribble was murdered on September the 8th, 1933 in Chicago. William Sharkey committed suicide at St Paul on December the 1st, 1933. Tui himself and two of his henchmen were convicted in state court at Chicago on February 23rd, 1934 and sentenced to serve 99 years in prison for kidnapping John Factor and holding him ransom. The FBI had investigated the factor kidnapping, but had stepped out at the conclusion of the investigation and turned over all evidence to state authorities. The federal courts had no jurisdiction because the kidnappers had not taken their victim over a state line, and more of the gang were captured or killed. Charles C. Connors was murdered at Willow Springs, Illinois on March 13th, 1934. On the same date, Basil the Earl Banghart, machine gunner and aviator for the mob, was convicted in state court in Chicago and sentenced to serve 99 years for participating in the factor kidnapping. Two months later, Banghart was also tried in federal court at Asheville, North Carolina and sentenced to serve 36 years in prison 
on a charge of robbing United States mail. Two remaining members of the Tui gang, Isaac A. Costner and Ludwig Schmidt, were also convicted on the mail robbery charge. And thus, by the end of May 1934, three members of the mob were dead and 11 in prison, serving long terms. For 10 years, the northwest section of Cook County, Illinois, had been known as Tui Territory. They had stamped their authority throughout the Midwest and along the Atlantic seaboard under the leadership of Roger Tui, one of six notorious sons of James Tui deceased, a former patrolman in the Chicago Police Department. But Tui the Terrible was quickly forgotten after he was incarcerated in the Stateville Penitentiary at Juliet in 1934. Banghart started serving his long sentence in Illinois State Prison at Menard. But after a break from Menard in 1935, he was transferred to Joliet, where he renewed acquaintances with Tui. And so, for seven years, Tui and Banghart remained in prison, keeping in touch with their outside contacts through the fantastic medium of the underworld grapevine and watching for any possible chance of escape. They took no one into their confidence. Banghart had already four previous escapes on his record and when he went to Joliet, he boasted that no prison in the world could keep him. He observed the activities of prison guards and assimilated every item of information that might be important in a planned escape. He learned the exact location of all the prison faculties, the height of the walls, the position of the guard towers and the distance between them, and the number of guards and the kind of weapons they carried. He even claimed to know that the guards carried rifles sighted at 100 yards, although they manned towers which were 300 yards apart. And ultimately, a plan of escape matured, a plan which necessitated assistance both inside and out. First of all, Tui and Banghart needed guns, so they took Big Ed Darlac into their confidence. Edward Darlac was a 32-year-old serving a 199-year sentence for murder. Darlac sent word to his younger brother, Casimir, on the outside. Casimir got two .45 calibre revolvers together with ammunition and one night in August 1942 tossed them into bushes near the prison. The guns were smuggled into the prison by a trustee who had the duty of lowering the prison flag each evening. He carried the guns in, wrapped in the flag. And with this accomplished, Banghart started negotiation for outside assistance. He needed a getaway car and a hideout. Tentative arrangements were made, but plans were never consummated. The characters willing to provide such services for a fee were not punctual or reliable. Again, it was the Earl who overcame the difficulties. 
He observed that a prison guard who manned tower number three drove his own car to work and left it parked near the tower gate. This was outside the prison walls. Banghart and Tui decided they could look for a hideout once they reached the car because the entire Chicago area was familiar territory. They needed extra inside help and they passed word to four other Joliet long-termers willing to make a break. William Stewart was 43-year-old under two 20-year sentences as a habitual criminal, parole violator and a highway robber. Eugene Langthorne was 36 years old under a sentence of one year to life for assault to commit murder and for two previous escapes from Juliet. Sinclair McInerney was 31 years old under sentence of one year to life for robbery, burglary and violation of parole. And lastly, Martelick Nelson, 40 years old and under a sentence of one year to life as a robber, habitual criminal and parole violator. And shortly before 1pm on October the 9th, 1942, Tui began the break from Juliet. He assaulted the driver of a prison garbage truck, obtained the truck and drove it to the mechanical shop where Langthorne was working, arriving there simultaneously with Banghart, McInerney, Darlick, Stewart and Nelson. Working together, the seven convicts overpowered guards on duty in the shop cut telephone wires, ripped some ladders out of locked racks, piled into the truck and headed to the northwest corner of the prison yard, holding two guards as hostages. Two and Bangart were brandishing .45 revolvers, Langthorne was armed with a Molotov cocktail and he intended to use it to start a panic if necessary. When the truck pulled up at the foot of tower number three, one of the convicts fired at the guard in the tower, bringing him under control. Others threw ladders up against the wall, and Tui led five of the men up into the tower where they disarmed the guard and seized the keys to the tower gate and the keys to the guard's car. Banghart stayed below to cover them and the guards who had been brought from the shop as hostages. Nelson went down the outside wall by rope, opened the tower door with the guard's keys and the gang ran out. They fled in the guard's automobile. They then took the cinder road that would bring them out to the highway to Chicago. The, the convicts were well armed. From tower number three, they had taken two high-powered rifles and a .45 caliber handgun. At 8pm that evening, the getaway car, travelling at a furious speed, broke through a police blockade at Elmshurst. At 11pm, the car was abandoned at Villa Park, in the middle of town where it could not be missed. The gang's way of notifying the FBI they had not taken a stolen car across a state line. From Villa Park, they fled into the Cook County Forest Reserve on foot and hid in a shack for four days. 
Bang heart porridge for food at night. On the evening of October the 13th, four days after the prison break, he returned to the shack with a stolen automobile and moved the whole gang to a 13th Street apartment on Chicago's west side. Posing as long-distance truck drivers, they all lived in his apartment for almost two months. Banghart clearly had become the leader by this time and was trying to hold them together long enough to plan and execute some big-time hold-ups, which would bring their fabulous sums of money needed in their schemes. They wanted to buy a farm near Chicago for their hideout, and they wanted to legitimately purchase automobiles to alleviate the danger of travelling in hot cars. And they wanted plastic surgery work done to change their appearance and destroy their fingerprints. Two was said to have contacts in the plastic surgery world, but the cost was going to be $100,000. But holding such a collection of desperate men together and keeping them in safe hiding was no easy job. Banghard ruled them with an iron hand though. He allowed no drinking except the occasional bottle brought into the apartment and permitted no promiscuous association with outsiders. Every day when a man went out for food or supplies, Banghart, armed with a sawn-off shotgun wrapped in a newspaper, followed to Convey. The convicts changed clothes with each other frequently, made efforts to disguise themselves. They also walked facing oncoming traffic so that police or FBI cars could not slip up on them from behind. About the 1st of December 1942, the gang, feeling that neighbours had begun to notice them, moved to a nearby apartment, but bedbugs drove them out in two days. Their next residence was in Dover Sun Apartments in Sunnyside Avenue. They had only made in Dover Sun for a few days when the first serious rift occurred. Stuart and Nelson went out alone one night and returned to the apartment drunk. Banghart disarmed them and pistol whipped them both, beating them until they were unconscious. Leaving the two battered and apparently dying, the other five convicts immediately abandoned the apartment and lived for a few days in a garage where they had their stolen car hidden. Banghart, Darlick, Tui, McInery and Lanthorne ultimately moved into Northwood Apartments in Leyland Avenue. Stuart and Nelson somehow recovered, got out of Doverson Apartments before they were discovered and separated. Nelson to go to Minneapolis and Stuart to seek refuge with a former girlfriend in Chicago. Although the gang had escaped from Joliet on October the 9th, 1942, the FBI did not search for them until October the 16th, 1942. They were state prisoners and in escaping, they had violated no federal law. But after a week had passed, they had failed to present themselves for registration under the Selective Service Law. They became draft delinquents. The FBI formally filed them for failure to register and obtained 
federal warrants of arrest. After all, there was a war on. Realising that the gang of desperados constituted a grave threat to public safety, Director J. Edgar Hoover personally took charge of the TUI investigation from its inception. From his Washington headquarters, he directed a continent-wide manhunt that had no equal since the days of Dillinger. Agents at FBI headquarters dug into the old voluminous forms about the factor kidnapping for every fragment of information about Tui and Bangar's past associates, hideouts, habits, friends and relatives. Agents were sent to Joliet to review prison records for the names of all relatives, visitors and correspondents of all seven escapees. They interviewed prison guards and convicts who were known to have associated in any way with the seven subjects. Convicts who had formerly associated with them but had already been discharged from prison were located. Old prison records and other institution where the subjects had served were also examined. Every known relative, every former friend or character witness, every attorney who was known to have represented the men, every possible contact was located and questioned. Those who were cooperative were interviewed for their assistance while others were watched day and night. Photographs, descriptions and brief criminal histories of all escapees were sent to every law enforcement agency in America and to all leading newspapers and agencies in Canada and Mexico. Stops were placed along the borders and all patrol stations were given photographs of the convicts. In short, every lead, no matter how shadowy, was cautiously and thoroughly run out. In the initial stages, the investigation was primarily an exhaustive preparation of a nationwide network of ambushes. Sooner or later, a break would come. One of the fugitives would attempt a contact that was already covered. Director Hoover and his staff deducted that Banghart would try and hold the gang together and that they would hide out in Chicago. They also deduced that by means of pickpocketing and petty stick-ups, they would try and obtain identification papers such as selective service cards to avoid an accidental arrest for vagrancy or the like. And thus, agents carefully reviewed the Chicago police files on unsolved petty stick-up crimes in which the victim had lost a wallet containing draft cards or other identification. The first break in the case came on December 15, 1942, when Nelson attempted to contact a relative in North Minneapolis. Knowing therefore that Nelson was in the area and he was not staying with relatives, Agents assumed that he was stopping at some cheap hotel using an alias. A logical alias would be the name of some Chicago citizen who had lost his wallet in a recent stick-up. And so, an FBI agent, an officer of the Minneapolis Police Department, 
check these possibilities. The next day, on December the 16th, 1942, they found Nelson in a hotel, in bed, with a loaded gun under his pillow and his door barricaded with a chair. He was registered under the name Harold Seeger. Harold Seeger was a Chicago grocer who was held up by a masked bandit on December the 11th, 1942 and robbed of his wallet, identity papers and pocket money. Nelson refused to talk, but the half-healed, grievous wounds on his head were a significant indication that the gang had trouble. And on the same day that Nelson was arrested, agents located Stuart. Several days before, Stuart had made a telephone call to Milwaukee. The call was traced to a pay telephone in a drugstore in North Broadway in Chicago. Within an hour after this call was made, agents were combing that area of Chicago. Contacts were developed in hotels, bar rooms, night spots, rooming houses and restaurants. Many reliable persons, when shown Stuart's photograph, believed they had seen that man recently. On December the 16th, 1942, agents observed a well-known acquaintance of Stuart's standing near a bank at the intersection of Oak Park and Harrison Street. He was carrying a newspaper high under his left arm, rather awkwardly. To the trained observer, he had the air of a man waiting to be met by someone he did not know. The newspaper could well be a tag in which he was to be recognised. The agents waited, and their assumption was correct. The man did have a rendezvous, but agents didn't recognise the individual who came to meet him. They, however, followed the unknown man and found that he lived in a hotel on West Harrison Street. Surveillance of the hotel soon located Stuart. He was known at the hotel as James Shea, this being the name of the man robbed of his wallet and identification papers in Chicago on November the 22nd. Stuart was also known as the Deacon because he dressed in black and wore his clothing like a minister in an effort to disguise himself. And when in public, he also carried a Bible, which he frequently opened and read. Agents did not arrest Stuart immediately. They hoped he would lead him to Tui and his gang. But for four days, there were no significant developments. And then, on December the 20th, Stuart had a rendezvous with two men unknown to the agents. The agents surmised that Stuart was not in direct contact with the gang and these two men were couriers between him and Banghart. Agents quietly took Stuart into custody and followed the two couriers. The next day, on December the 21st, agents following one of the couriers recognised Banghart and Darlick whom the courier met in a crowded downtown area. The agent instinctively realised what was wrapped inside the newspaper that Banghart was carrying, and they realised it was not the time to take Banghart and Darlick. 
They knew that if Banghart was approached in the street, he would start shooting wildly and the life of bystanders would be imperiled. They also knew that if they took Banghart and Darlick, the search for the remaining fugitives would become even more difficult. The thing to do was to follow Banghart and Darlick until they led them to the hideout so that all five fugitives could be taken at once without endangering the life of innocent civilians. The surveillance on Banghart for the next seven days was most difficult. He carried a shotgun at all times and he knew all the tricks of shaking off or detecting surveilling officers. The hazardous surveillance, however, paid off. Banghart never realised he was being followed. Within five days, agents learned that the entire gang had been living in an apartment in number 31 at 1256 Leyland Avenue, but that they were splitting into two groups. McKearney and Langthorne were remaining in apartment number 31. Darlick, Tui and Bankhart were moving into an apartment at 5116 Kenmore Avenue. One thing remained to be done before arrangements could be made for the arrests. The agents who had never seen McInerney and Langthorne had to be absolutely sure that they were the right men before attempting the arrest. On Sunday afternoon, December the 27th, the two men believed to be them left their apartment for a few minutes. While agents were following them on the street, two other agents slipped into the apartment and obtained some discarded bottles which could be processed for fingerprints. In the Chicago office, they developed the bottle fingerprints and they matched those of the two fugitives. Director Hoover hurried to Chicago to make final plans for the raid. In both apartment houses, unsuspecting neighbours who might be in the line of fire had to be secretly evacuated. Arrangements were made with the police department to block off the streets and every conceivable means of an exit had to be covered and the agents deployed so that they would not be caught in their own crossfire. On the Monday evening, December the 28th, McInerney and Langthorne again left their apartment and went to visit the other fugitives. Two agents slipped into their room to await their return. Other agents filtered into the building to cover all possible means of escape. At 11.20pm, the two fugitives returned, but almost showing a sixth sense, they approached the door of their apartment with their guns drawn. After a tense listening pause before the door, Langthorne inserted the key and threw the door open. One of the agents in the room called for their surrender. We are federal officers, put your hand up. But both convicts fired in the direction of the voice and the agents opened fire. Both men lurched from the room, stumbling over the banister and fell dead on the second floor landing. On the body of both men were found large sums of money. Director Hoover next took his men to 5116 Kenmore Avenue where they surrounded the building 
and took up their assigned posts in adjoining apartments. They waited till just before dawn. At 5am on December the 29th, 1942, powerful searchlights were turned on to illuminate the apartment building and to play on the windows of the fugitive's first floor apartment. As the lights went on, one of Director Hoover's assistants began to speak into a microphone connected to a loudspeaker outside the apartment door. Tui, Banghart, Darlick, we are the FBI. Surrender and come out with your hands up. There's no hope of escape. You're surrounded. You have 10 minutes to decide and then we'll start shooting. The men were told, Banghart, you come out first. Come out backwards with your hands in the air. Tui, you come out next. And Darlick, you come out last. Come out one at a time. Come out backwards with your hands in the air. The agents could hear excited, muffled voices in the apartment. Let's fight. No, they've got us covered on all sides. What do you say? Let's give up. I know how these guys operate. Listen to that voice. It sure gives me the creeps. A few seconds later, Banghart backed out of the apartment, hands held high in the air, talking fast. Don't do anything. Don't do anything. Don't worry. I don't do anything. He had no chance to do anything. Director Hoover seized him and he was handcuffed. Next came Tui, the very ghost of the once feared Black Roger. His curly black hair had been peroxide into a reddish blonde and was the texture of straw. Clad in flaming red satin pyjamas, he was trembling and silent as he backed out of the apartment, holding his hands over his head. He stared morosely at the floor while he was being handcuffed. Darlick, as instructed, backed out last. Beinhardt was the first to regain his composure. You're Mr Hoover, aren't you? I pegged you from your picture in the paper. It's not everyone who has the honour of having the big chief get him. On the way to the FBI office, Banghart chattered endlessly. We picked the wrong time for this break. A fellow has to have a selective service card, a social security card, and is hindered by too many wartime restrictions. If I'd broken out two years ago, I would have got out of the country maybe gone to South America and got a job flying. He grew expansive and even paid the FBI a compliment. Mr Hoover, you've got a good outfit. That sound chilled us. It was coming through the window, through the front door and through the back door, all over us. At first, I thought it was some of our enemies out to get us. In connection with the investigation, in searches incidental to the arrests, FBI agents recovered a total of over $13,000, which the gang had taken in a robbery in an armoured car in North Chicago on the 18th of December, 1942. They also recovered stolen automobiles, guns, expensive clothing, and draft and social security card of persons who had been robbed. Nelson, Stewart, Darlick and Tui were all returned to state custody 
Banghart was sent to Alcatraz. Banghart had been born in Bearville, Michigan in 1900. He'd finished high school and had one year at college before he turned to a life of crime. The records indicate that he'd stole over a hundred automobiles in and around Detroit before his first arrest and conviction in 1926. On January the 4th, 1926, he was arrested in Cincinnati and returned to Detroit to stand trial for car theft. He pleaded guilty and threw himself on the mercy of the court. The judge placed him on probation for one year. Two months later, in April 26, he was again arrested, this time in Dayton, Ohio, and was charged with a violation of the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act. He was convicted and sentenced to serve two years in the United States Penitentiary at Atlanta, Georgia, where he deliberately made the acquaintance of long-termers, making what was the equivalent of a postgraduate study in crime. Assigned to the window-washing detail, Banghart had a good opportunity to saw the steel bars enclosing a window. At dusk, on the 25th of January 1927, together with other convicts, he made his escape through the window, jumping 20 feet to the ground and made a headlong dash across an open field. Outrunning the bloodhounds, he plunged through swamps and marshes to freedom. He made his way to Montana, where he cooled off for a period before going back east to organise a business of stealing automobiles. He established a ring of car thieves which operated in and out of New Jersey. Some of the stolen cars were driven south, others sold in the same city where they'd been stolen after Banghart had changed the motor and serial number. In October 1928, he was arrested in Pennsylvania and turned over to a United States Marshal at Pittsburgh for arraignment on the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act charge. While in the custody of the Marshal in the Federal Building at Pittsburgh, Banghart asked permission to go to the lavatory. Walking down the corridor, he suddenly shoved the Marshal off balance and dashed out of the building, pointing in front of him and shouting, Get the police! Stop that man! The ruse worked and Banghard made good his escape. Two weeks later, he was again arrested in Philadelphia. In that two weeks, he had dyed his hair, shaved his moustache and put on glasses. He was returned to Atlanta and served out his sentence, which expired on February the 14th, 1930. When he left, however, he did not go free. He was taken into custody on a detainer and moved to Knoxville, where he was confined in the Knox County Jail to await prosecution in federal court. He made an unsuccessful attempt to escape from this jail. And when he was tried, he pleaded guilty and asked for probation, saying that he had never had the chance to go straight. The judge, however, sentenced to two more years at the penitentiary in Atlanta. Banghart served this sentence, but in January 1932, 
Less than two months after his release, he was arrested in Detroit as a robbery suspect. He was released to local authorities at South Bend, Indiana for prosecution on an armed robbery that had occurred in that city in 1927. However, on his way to South Bend, Banghard boasted that he belonged to the Purple Gang in Detroit and that the South Bend jail would not keep him long. And he was right. On March the 27th, 1932, he blinded a turnkey with pepper, took his jail keys, seized a machine gun and shot his way out of jail. It was at this point that he fled to Chicago to become a machine gunner and top leader in the Tui mob, which at that time was engaged in the underworld war in the Al Capone side. It was Banghart who planned and led the kidnapping of John Factor by the Tui mob in 1933. In the final stages of this case, he narrowly escaped capture after a running gun battle with the police. He then left Chicago, hid out for a while in Tennessee and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina for a while. In November 1933, Banghart and his two henchmen robbed a United States mail truck at Charlotte, obtaining $120,000. He was next arrested in a fashionable apartment in Baltimore, Maryland on February the 10th, 1934. After standing trial in Chicago for participating in the factor kidnapping and standing trial at Asheville, North Carolina for participating in the mail robbery, he was returned to Illinois incarcerated in the state prison at Maynard to serve the 99 years of the sentence which had drawn for the factor kidnapping. And thus, on October the 2nd, 1935, he and other inmates at Menard assaulted prison guards and, in a commandeered truck, crashed through the prison gates. He was soon recaptured and, as we previously pointed out, was sent to Joliet to complete his sentence. In 1954, a federal judge declared the factor kidnapping a fraud and that Banghart and Tui had most likely been wrongly convicted involving the Chicago outfit and corrupt Chicago officials. Banghart was transferred back to stateside in 1959 and eventually the kidnapping conviction was overturned and the mail robbery charges were dropped for time served. He was released at the age of 60 and he was reunited with his longtime girlfriend, Mae Bladcock. He'd also received a small inheritance from his aunt 15 years before. He then retired to a small island in Puget Sound, Washington State. He lived the rest of his life peacefully, dying in 1982. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one. And if you did, please subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. Pictures will also be on the Twitter page the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. And until next time, bye-bye.